Hi, I'm April Lovett. And I'm Daryl Lovett. We've been together for six years, and we have a sweet and sassy little girl, an adorable and talkative little boy, and our fur child, our dog, Lainey. <laughs> oh. That's funny, huh? Hi, I'm April Lovett. And I'm Daryl Lovett. We've been together for six years, and we have a sweet and sassy little girl, an adorable and talkative little boy, and our fur child, our dog, Lainey. That's right. We also work our nine-to-five jobs together, we teach together, and we own the Lovett Company. We do so much together, and we wanted to share some of our tips and tricks for living out our 24-7 relationship. That's right. A relationship that is all day, every day. Plus, we wanted to share with you how we managed to run our business alongside full-time jobs and still find time for kids, chores, and fun. So in this podcast, the Success in Black and White podcast, we will talk about navigating the gray in life. So get ready, get ready, get ready. We're going to be bringing to you Real Talk concepts every week as we share some of our stories, best practices, as well as talk to guests about how they found success by doing extraordinary things in their everyday lives. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Chantel Buggs. Dr. Buggs is an assistant professor of sociology and African-American studies at Florida State University, where she has been a faculty member since 2017. Her primary research agenda focuses on multiracial identity, family dynamics, and interracial relationships of race, gender, intimacy, and culture broadly defined. She has published several articles about the online dating experience of self-identified multiracial and multi-ethnic women, including one that addresses how the Black Lives Matter movement is shaping how women vet potential partners and another about how multiracial women view their relationships as interracial. Dr. Bugs has also written about her personal experiences with the pressures from white people in her family to feel a certain ownership of her whiteness. These personal experiences as a multiracial black woman influence her writing and teaching about race and racism via an intersectional lens and how multiracial people fit within U.S. structures. She also writes a lot about multiracial representation in popular culture, among other things. If you're interested in more of her musings on these topics, feel free to follow her on Twitter. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Success in Black and White. The podcast. We are back one more again. We are back one more again. Coming to you live. From the house. That's right, the house. And again, we are not alone no. right now. And we are so glad. I know. And I'm looking forward to this one. And I'm going to hand it over to you and let you do your thing with the intro so that we can dive right in. Okay. Well, I am super excited. You guys already got to hear all about Dr. Chantel Bugs. Um, I am really excited because just from a personal standpoint, aside from everything else you got to hear in her biography, this is a person that I have taken to... Um, quietly stalking on Twitter <laughs> because she says whatever she feels like saying and I love it and I'm here for it. Um, and in addition, she has done so much. You guys got to hear some of the research and some of the stuff that she's involved in, but she's done a lot of research that for us personally has really spoken to us being that we are an interracial couple, that we are raising multiracial children and that, you know, we have that family dynamic. We were excited that we were able to get you Dr. Bugs to come on our podcast and talk to people who are maybe in similar families as us, or maybe part of our families and friends 
um, just about some of your research and about you and um, some of the questions that we we sent to you to, to help answer for our audience. Um, so we're excited to have you. And really, we want, we got a chance to kind of introduce you a little bit, but we want our audience to hear about you from you. So tell us a little bit about you and your background and why, what is it you're passionate about? Why are you studying interracial couples and why are you studying multiracial children and families? Like we want to know all about you (laughs) in a nutshell. (laughs) Um, (laughs) As I come in laughing like a maniac. (laughs) Um, Well, uh, thank you for for all of that enthusiasm. It continues to kind of surprise me that anybody sees any value in anything that I have to say. <laughs> so I am the oldest of, of four. Uh, my parents met in the Marine Corps. Um, so I am a military brat. I am uh, obviously the, the child of, of a, an interracial couple. Uh, my dad is uh, from Flint, Michigan, and my mom is, uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess I would say she's from kind of rural mountainous Colorado. She kind of moved around to a couple of different places, but like my grandma is from Silverton, Colorado, which is a small mining town up in the mountains. Um, and then my mom, uh, I think, spent a good portion of her childhood growing up in a small town called Meeker. Um, she likes to talk about how she had only seen a black person on television for like pretty much her entire, she didn't see a black person in real life until she was like 19 and she had moved to South Carolina. So yeah, there's a lot of aspects of my mom's kind of background and biography that, uh, kind of make it hilarious that, uh, she married a black man (laughs) and like an unambiguously black man. And, you know, has four very brown-skinned children, uh, you know, and had to deal a lot with, uh, you know, people assuming that she had adopted us. They were like, oh, how wonderful for you to adopt those four little brown children, you know? (laughs) So there's definitely those aspects. And then, uh, you know, and then also just kind of the ways that people uh, responded to uh, her and my father. Uh, My dad, uh, one of the most... (laughs) <laughs> it's it's a compelling story for a lot of reasons to me, just based on what I've researched. My dad talks about uh, one of the first t- the first times uh, she she brought him back to to Meeker. I think they were back. I don't know for some reunion thing, something. And you know, so my dad was a, a wrestler for the Marine Corps. He wrestled for the Marine Corps, so he was very fit. Um, he actually went to the Olympic trials. He was a very talented wrestler. Uh, so you know, my dad's like six one. Again, unambiguously black man <laughs> with muscles. So when he shows up into this, you know, small little white town <laughs> that has no black people ever, um, they all assumed that my dad was an NFL player. Uh, and then my, mom, and my dad played for the Broncos and my mom was just, you know, like, good for her, <laughs> you know, that she, you know, got her an NFL player. Because of course, like that, right, a pro athlete would make a black person acceptable. <laughs> and uh, my dad was talking about how these like other women like at this bar or whatever they were at like were trying to hit on him and he was just like I need to get out of here before someone you know like tries to string me up because the wrong woman talked to me you know and so we've definitely had like conversations me and my dad as I've gotten older and you know the the research that I specialize in 
you know, kind of just talking about how a lot of the ways that my mom, I think, was like oblivious to some of the things that were happening in, you know, kind of how people responded to them, which I think certainly kind of manifests in some of the dynamic that I have with my white family members, <laughs> especially as I have gone further in my studies, um, come to the specialization that I have uh, in studying race and racism, um, and have just developed a particular set of politics. Uh, it's definitely created a lot of tension between me and my white family members. Uh, to the point that there's always a lot of uh, these kind of secret phone calls that are, what is Chantel posting on the internet? What is Chantel posting on Facebook? Why does Chantel, you know, hate white people? <laughs> um, she's so racist against white people. Uh, you know, my dad's response is always, well, this is what she studies. She's literally an expert in this. <laughs> um, and that's not typically my mom's response. <laughs> I don't want to necessarily, you know, go too deep into the uh, the tragic mulatto waters, I guess. But yeah, no, there's there's definitely the 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 kind of experiences just that I had being uh, a mixed kid in a military town because my parents we moved to Colorado Springs when I was like seven. So um, after we, I spent a year on the north side of town going to a majority white school. And then we moved to the south side of town where I went to a majority black and Hispanic school. But because it's an army town and we lived like 15 minutes from Fort Carson, uh, a lot of my friends were mixed race. You know, there's probably, I mean, I don't have like, you know, the data offhand, I think to like rattle off about this, but I would imagine you probably have a really disproportionate percentage of military families that are interracial. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the military being one of the oldest integrated institutions, but it's also kind of the most widely and consistently integrated uh, institutions that we have. And we can certainly talk about, you know, kind of all the problematics and issues that I have now that, you know, I have learned things about war and colonialism and all those things. It's definitely a weird kind of position to be like anti-military and be also a military brat of two very proud Marines. But yeah, so, you know, growing up in a military town, I had a ton of friends who were multiracial. So I didn't necessarily feel like I was some weird person because so many of my friends were also mixed race. Like that was just so normal. I felt way more out of place, uh, you know, when I went to college and not necessarily even, I wouldn't even necessarily say as a multiracial person necessarily. Uh, it was definitely more the combination of the impact of class, I would argue, because I went to Duke for undergrad. And so a lot of the student body there, regardless of, you know, kind of racial <laughs> background um, are, you know, come from pretty educated families, come from at least more affluent families than I came from. So that I think kind of like that, that first generation, that working class identity, this kind of kid of a military background identity, like those are all things I think that really shaped kind of how I approach everything in my career now, especially I think when it comes to teaching and kind of how I try to like the things that I want to prioritize in terms of how I treat students uh, and how I approach things in the classroom. But, you know, obviously with that, that background, there's also kind of the evolution that I've had as a researcher and as an educator. Um, so, you know, being exposed to black feminist theory, 
to post-colonial theory, to critical race theory, which there's been some interesting uh, discussions among academics right now, actually, <laughs> thanks to, um, as I like to call him, Agent Orange and his <laughs> um, you know, new policy, <laughs> his new policy about how you aren't allowed to teach white privilege or critical race theory workshops in the government anymore. You know, so as I've read, you know, all of this kind of work, you know, it's definitely shifted my politics a bit. So I'm definitely a lot more, I think, politically left than virtually all of my family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, there's definitely some some Trumpers on my mother's side of the family. Uh, so it, uh, you know, and I mean, but even my siblings, I don't, I don't, I don't know how my siblings voted. And I know my mom is a pretty staunch Democrat, but you know, they, we definitely still have like, we have a family group chat. So my parents have been divorced since I was in fourth grade, but we're all in a group chat together. It's, it's, um, this is a fairly recent development. (laughs) Um, a lot of the dynamics I think between, (laughs) my parents and all of us kind of shifted after my dad got diagnosed with kidney failures and my dad had been dialysis. Um, So my dad's coming up, I think on year two or three of his kidney transplant. Um, And he's doing really well, but you know, he was on dialysis for a long time. And uh, so, you know, I think once you have, you know, families kind of dealing with, you know, critical illnesses Mm. and, you know, people's people will, you know, kind of put, grudges or feelings to the side. But I say that to say that like, there was definitely messages from my mom. I think that she maybe didn't intend to be racialized. Um, So I I feel like there was definitely kind of a clear messaging that there was a tension around any interest in black men as like kind of romantic partners. And I think a lot of that was tied to the way that my parents' marriage dissolved very uh, dramatically. And, you know, there was, (laughs) you know, infidelities and all those other kinds of things. So, I mean, it definitely, I think, has informed, I think, how my mom Mm -hmm. responds to me and my siblings' racial identities and how we believe we move through the world and who we find ourselves, remote, you know, romantically involved with. So there's definitely, then I get a lot of this, you do know you have a white mother. Uh, why, you know, why are you being you know, so pro-black and you're, I'm worried you're going to turn into an angry black woman and all these other kinds of things. You know, and it's not just my mom, right, you know, who kind of like utilizes that rhetoric, uh, like, when my sister was here earlier in the in the year, uh, we got into a big argument because she was just like saying basically a lot of like my mom's talking points, <laughs> but coming from you know her, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So there's like this there's this tension that in choosing blackness, I'm choosing my father who treated you know my mother in a particular way, and so then right, it's not just the rejectness of white a rejecting of whiteness or a rejecting of my mother. It's also like, in her mind, I think, supporting, treating her way. So it's like all of that is tied up together in this really complex way. I just gave y'all so much information. We love it. I love it. As a white woman married Mm -hmm. to a black man and we have children who identify as black children and they also identify as white children. They are multiracial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My 
our question for you as we approach an age with our kids, and I think that some of our audience, um, the ones that we're well aware of have probably younger kids as well that are around our kids age, like five and under, as we start to think about how do we talk to them about some of the things happening in the world and their identities, like what are the most important pieces of their identities that we should uphold for them in order to, in order to make sure that they are accepting of all of their identities and to give them confidence in who they Mm -hmm. are. Yeah. I mean, so when I was growing up, I mean, my mom very much was on that, you know, you're both, you know, like that was very much her, refrain and uh my father's rebuttal would often be while the world is going to see you as black the world is going to treat you as black you need to be like he was very much like they need to be prepared to be treated as black people assumed to be black people to deal with the discrimination that black people experience you know so that was always i think a running tension and i also think too i mean I think, I guess there were probably multiple reasons, but I think about how we ended up in Colorado Springs because my mom had grown up in Colorado rather than like, say, ending up in Detroit and living near my father's family in Flint. So we we did not go visit my father's side of the family. I believe the last time before, um, before I was just in uh, Detroit and Flint last year for my great aunt's 75th birthday, Um, where there were probably almost a hundred different family members that came to that. The last time I had been there, I was three years old. So I didn't really have close relationships to my black extended family. Um, And I think some of that certainly had to do with the fact that like we lived in Colorado um, where we could drive, you know, a couple of hours to where my grandmother lived at the time. So, you know, like I saw my white extended family in a way, I did not spend time with my Black extended family. Um, and so I kind of like latched on to my childhood friends, you know, who were either multiracial Black like me or were, you know, not maybe didn't identify as multiracial, but, you know, so I kind of latched on to their families uh, for that connection to kind of Black cultural practice. And I mean, one of my mom's really close friends um, is Black and, you know, her, her mother would babysit us in the summers, uh, you know, so I was around all of, you know, her grandkids. And so we basically, you know, these were my play cousins, right? You know, so uh, fictive kin for the win. And uh, so, so it's, I feel like there were ways, maybe intentionally or not, that I think that my mom, especially when, you know, she became our sole, you know, kind of custodial parent, after my parents' divorce, uh, that, you know, she kind of tried to support um, our blackness, um, you know, so we continued living on the South side. I continued going to school to, a, you know, with majority people of color. Um, I, there was a point, I think, where my mom wanted me to try to go to this, this private school. She wanted me to kind of try to test in to go there. And I was very resistant because she wanted me to go for high school you know, and this is one of those smaller K through 12. So they had no sports. If I would have gotten in and enrolled there, I, every, the other two black students enrolled at that school were like uh, in the elementary school ages. So I'm like, I literally would have been the only black person. I'm like, you want me to go from a school where there are a ton of black and Hispanic and dark-skinned Asian and indigenous people 
and there's white people, right? Like there's all of these people in this. You want me to go from that to a majority white school in the affluent part of town just so I can, you know, get the opportunities with that. And then I was also mad because I'm like, there's no sports, <laughs> you know? I'm like, no, like I've given up, you know, I've had to babysit my siblings for all of these years, you know, since my parents, you know, since like the age of 10, uh, you know, so high school was finally going to be that time where I actually could do those after, you know, those after school curriculars because I didn't have to go home to take care of my siblings. And so I remember my mom being like all bothered that I was so resistant and not just that it was just about like the sports thing and leaving my friends, but for me, it was a blackness thing too. I'm like, no, I don't want to be the only black person that's in the high school. <laughs> like, no, I don't want to be that. So, you know, I mean, it's funny because I think like my mom, for some reason, seems to like reflect back and seems to see me as like less identifying with my blackness when I was younger. But then I think about like some of the things I was involved in, especially as like a middle school and a high schooler. So, you know, like I was involved with the, the National Urban League and actually like, you know, won a, a scholarship from them when I went to college. I was part of this um, nonprofit that one of my friends who's black, her parents were both teachers and they also had a nonprofit. And so like they had like a step team and our step team was called Bout It. About it, about it. Uh, <laughs> so, like, you know, I was a part of that for years. I, I did this program called the Black Issues Forum <laughs> at, uh, at uh, oh gosh, Colorado State. You know, uh, I uh, was in, you know, the Black Student Union at my high school. And, you know, so I did a lot of organizing through that. So, like, I, I reflect back now and like as much as I think I, I definitely still held on to some of that, you know, like multiracial exceptionalism, like uh, there's this awful poem that I wrote for some competition when I was like, I think middle school age. So I was probably 12 or something. And I can provide you the poem later. The only reason that like the font the like the, the text of this is somewhere is because my mother she must have kept it somewhere and she literally like posted it on facebook <laughs> and so all of these friends of mine from college are like oh yes miss Faye, we love it <laughs> you know, like, but anyway so like the gist of this poem is basically i'm like oh you know i'm bringing together all of the different you know i very much i think had like been brainwashed into thinking that I had some kind of magical, you know, bridging mixed race powers. And, you know, I was bringing these different groups into one person. So that was definitely, you know, the, the, the mixed race, you know, savior Kool-Aid. I was, I was drinking that at one point. But I think I, I cared a lot about being Black and things that mattered to Black people. And I was surrounded by Black people who, you know, I loved and, and cared for, even as I didn't feel, even as I felt, you know, kind of um, left out in that I didn't have the connections to my Black biological, you know, extended family. I had all of these other people in my life who were Black. So, yeah, I feel like now I can look back and I'm like, actually, like, I feel like I was, you know, exhibiting like a lot of these kind of like kind of black politics, even as a teenager, um, that I think maybe my mom just didn't, I don't know. I don't know what she maybe thought I was doing <laughs> with, you know, with those things. But like, I remember 
one of the years I was on the Black Student Union exec board. So my high school, we did like these pep rallies for like different things. And so we would have a Black History Month pep rally. And so the Black Student Union basically came up with the programming for that. And so whatever whatever reason, I, I forget exactly what my position was, but I was the one basically who organized the Black History Month pep rally one year. And I was either a junior or maybe a senior that year. I wanted it to be about like, the theme of it to be about black art. And so like I put together like this big slideshow about like all of these like black artists like Romare Bearden and, and Basquiat and all these people. And then uh, had some like we had some of our musicians playing music. And then there was another like one of these uh, girls in my graduating class performed a poem and she kind of, you know, dressed, you know, all black with the beret. And, you know, it was supposed to be kind of, you know, like this empowerment themed uh, poem. And so like a number of the black students in my graduating class, you know, were like, you know, yelling out black power and all those other kinds of things, you know, like it's like affirmations. And a group of white students got pissed and went to our principal who was black. And our principal was black in an interracial relationship with an Asian woman, went to him and they said that they felt um, intimidated by all of our black classmates yelling out black power during this assembly and how if they had yelled out white power, <laughs> that wouldn't be allowed. And why is there a black student union? Why can't we have a white student union? And why is there a white history? You know, all of that stuff. And this is happening, you know, as a high schooler, you know, in 2004, 2005. <sighs> and so my principal's response actually was to ban all interest groups after that. So like there was, so there was obviously the Black Student Union, there was an Asian Pacific Islander Student Union, because we had like a huge population of Samoans at my high school. Like all of that was banned. And he was like, you can have just like a diversity group and that's it. Um, and so, I mean, that happened, I think after, like he, you know, the ban went to effect after I graduated, but I'm just like, I think about that moment and I'm like, I didn't, I don't know if I thought about how what I was doing was particularly radical and that it would make white people that upset. Right. But it was, a, but you know, when I think back, I'm like, yeah, this is a pretty black assembly. <laughs> I'm like, here's a video from people who went on like a black college tour. Like it was just like blackity black, black. And so, yeah. So I think for me, it's kind of nice, I think to like kind of look back and be like, okay, like I didn't, be, just become this person that I am now, like out of nowhere. Like, I feel like the the threads were there and it was just me, you know, shedding more, I think of that, like, um, belief in a multiracial exceptionalism. Speaking of that, because one of the pieces that you wrote about Harry and Megan, right. right? And, and what is their last name? Harry and Megan, the, Royalty. Yeah. <laughs> the royalty. Well, yeah, they're well, they're they they have I guess formally um, left behind the right. the their his and her royal highness monikers. Right. Um, but I believe she's still. I think they still hold their title as Duchess, Duchess and Duke. 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 <laughs> um, well, you wrote an exceptional piece about the saviorism complex, basically, yeah. like this interracial relationship and even Megan Markle herself being a multiracial person, Mm -hmm. your article was, I was like, this is amazing. It was profound for me, but maybe you can talk a little bit about how the saviorism piece plays into how America or even the world at this point sees 
interracial couples, um, multiracial children. How do you see that? How, what have you seen? I mean, it's, it's very much a Western thing. Um, this idea that, and particularly Western nations that are, uh, kind of obsessive about multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. So the UK, Canada, the U S so <laughs> this kind of narrative that, so part, some of this we can trace to social science. So social science has certainly spent a couple of decades um, basically making the case that evidence of the closing of social gaps between particularly white and black people is signified or can be measured through increases in interracial relationships between black and white people. So if you have more interracial relationships between black and white people, more marriages between black and white people, then that is supposed to signal a closing of social distance, as we call it. However, then you start looking into qualitative research, and it literally shows that, you know, yes, white people uh, may, you know, be interested in having or, or do have, right, you know, romantic and sexual relationships with people of a different race from them or a different ethnicity from them. Um, and I, I make a point of that because I think the most common interracial or interethnic pairings that the census measures uh, are white Hispanic couples. So just because people, you know, are willing to engage in some form of intimacy with someone of a different race or ethnicity from them doesn't mean that suddenly all of the racism that they've been socialized, you know, the so the racism soup that they've been socialized in suddenly, you know, goes into, you know, goes out of effect. So again, you know, my mother has children who, for the most part, um, are bred as Black Sometimes we're read as, you know, like, I think Afro-Latinx. So my brother gets Dominican. I've gotten Dominican, Puerto Rican. I also get, I get indigenous quite a bit, uh, particularly uh, Pacific Islanders. Uh, so Hawaiian, Samoan. So, you know, but for the most, like, pretty consistently, at least in person, uh, we are not mistaken for white people. Uh, we're pretty consistently assumed to be people of color. So, you know, my mom had to raise four little brown people um, and she was in an intimate relationship, you know, with my father and hasn't been in a relationship since. And so it's, again, like she obviously has that intimacy with people of color and she certainly likes to bring that up. (laughs) However, um, I think about how she still says things that are problematic. And even when I have resisted other people trying to exoticize me either as a black woman or as a multiracial woman um so you know kind of the i remember there was there was a person who i'd matched with on one of the apps and he'd made some comments via text about because it was so cool that i was multiracial and that between the two of us our kids would be like every race (laughs) oh i was just like you know, I'm just like vomit emoji, you know, like just disgusted. And my mom is like, and he kept saying that um, I was exotic. And I like, that's always like a cue for me. I'm like, oh, we need to, you know, I'm washing my hands. Like, you know, this really, this is over. We're not talking anymore. And my mom is like, well, you are exotic. And I'm like, no. I was like, I am not an imported fruit. I am not exotic. <laughs> like, what do you mean? And even my, my sister, who's the next youngest down from me, 
similar kind of, she was like, wait, Mickey Marks. And they like, I remember like we were having a conversation and they both like kind of tag team me into being like, you're just trying to sociologicalize everything and <laughs> you're just overthinking it. Blah, 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 blah. You know, so again, just because people have intimacy with people of a different race from them doesn't mean necessarily that they have a progressive politics <laughs> um, or that they can't, you know, still subscribe to some really problematic ideas about not only like mixed race people, but in general, like anytime I have, I've gone out with a couple of people who were Middle Eastern or South Asian and my mom always has something to say about like, Muslim religion <laughs> and like how they treat women and their values. And I'm just like, you do realize this is racist, right? Like you can't say these things about people and then try to say it's a women's rights thing. Like, you know, no. And, you know, and the number of things I've heard, you know, my white family members say, we're not even going to get into that. So yeah, you know, so there's, there's lots and lots of evidence in the social science research, you know, that kind of shows that just because white people have people of other races in their families or they are in a relationship with them doesn't mean that they can't still be racist, even to their partners. Um, I mean, you know, and there's like this weird line to tread between like race, you know, race play, you know, as part of, you know, a sexual dynamic that two people are consenting to and like race influencing how you even think about like your sexual relationship with your partner, you know, but like we do, we have to do have to contend with, you know, the ways that uh, for a lot of white people, like they may think it's a compliment that, you know, they're, they're, you know, talking about the particular, especially if it's a heterosexual pairing, which a lot of the research is on heterosexual interracial relationships. We have way less research about um, queer uh, interracial relationships um, and even that is more so looking at gay men and talking a lot about sexual racism, right? But, you know, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's definitely, you know, the fetishizing mm -hmm. that happens. And I think that that's something, you know, and it's weird that the U.S. in particular puts sexuality in so much of our broader discourse and our culture, um, but then also has quite a bit of squeamishness about talking about sexuality and pleasure and and those kinds of things you know which is and and to some extent you know that certainly makes its way into uh academia um so we definitely have these conversations among sexuality scholars which i consider myself part of that subfield where like it's okay to study sexual identity and maybe to an extent the behavior if Mostly you're like, well, you know, HIV transmission or, you know, like certain kinds of ways of talking about sexual behavior. Um, but a lot of like the actual pleasure and enjoyment that people get out of having sex doesn't really make its way into the research um, because that makes people uncomfortable. That's, I think, the thing that's kind of like interesting about the obsession with interracial relationships and mixed children and mixed people, um, right, is because it is to some extent an obsession, right, with sex across racial lines uh, and particularly sex, right, that produces, right, uh, you know, right, that has fertility, right? And so, like, this idea that by virtue of having a parent, parents who identify as different racial groups, you just are naturally imbued with the ability to bridge groups. I'm like, 
No, like, I mean, even if we're talking about, you know, bridging different groups, like that's actually a skill someone would have to learn. Um, and so then perhaps if, you know, you are dealing with a family where, you know, one, it hasn't, you know, the marriage hasn't, the family hasn't dissolved. There isn't, you know, certain kinds of tensions from other side, you know, each side, then maybe perhaps you learn certain kinds of skill sets about, you know, but like, then again, like, how much is that? Like, I feel like any family has to like learn how to bridge family differences, right? So like, is it something that you're specific, like some skill set that you're like specifically learning to build in, in, in an interracial couple um, or as a multiracial child. And, you know, this is, this has been a longstanding trope. Um, sci-fi, I mean, loves it. You know, I mean, and you always get these allegories for multiracial figures, particularly multiracial saviors. Um, so you get Neo, you know, in the Matrix, right, who, you know, somehow bridges, right, humanity and the machine. You get um, various, you know, space, (laughs) you know, operas, you know, where there's some half cyborg or half human or half alien or half, you know, what, and right there, that, that figure is always like tragic in some way. That figure is always like, you know, kind of trying to fight for belonging, doesn't know where they fit in, right? (laughs) You know, like this is a repeated narrative that, uh, you know, we, we kind of have an obsession with even before, at least in the U.S., you get kind of this uptick in basically, I think, attention to multiracial identity as an identity. So there's certainly been, you know, kind of this discussion about mixed, like, it's not like mixed race people suddenly popped up in the 1990s, um, <laughs> right? Uh, or even, you know, the so-called loving generation, right? You know, of people who were born, you know, of those marriages that, you know, were made universally legal with the, the loving decision in, in 67. What, you know, so we, we can go back, you know, to kind of the earliest days of this, of this country, right, you know, and think about kind of how they thought about hybridity. But, uh, you know, this, this automatic kind of attaching it to like a better future, um, this ideal, um, the idea that, you know, even if we're like, I think, particularly thinking about um, like multiracial black people. Uh, so, you know, you, there, there was this period of time where, you know, the, uh, there was the whole kind of, you know, hybrid degeneration kind of logic. So this idea that if you mix the races, you're actually bringing together the, like what's going to appear are the worst features of both of those racial groups. Right. Um, and if you're, you know, this is coming at a time period when black people were pretty universally viewed as subhuman. So, right. So also not just like whatever the like worst features of white people are, are going to manifest, but also like it's going to be dominated by all of the bad features, right. Of black people. So, you know, you're, you're creating a subhuman person if you mix the races. So don't do that. Right. But then, you know, you also get some arguments, the whole hybrid vigor argument where it's like, oh, mixing the races is actually going to bring out the best in, in both. Which again, most of like what was considered the best qualities of Black people during these time periods of, uh, you know, slavery and, you know, the like kind of immediately after emancipation, you know, was about physicality. It wasn't about intellect, right? The idea was that whiteness brought intellect. And so actually you would create a problem because you would create black people that were too smart if you if you write if you if you brought if you had white people mixing with them so right you, so you kind of had those competing <laughs> ideas but right i think to some extent that hybrid vigor idea has stuck around 
And so there is, yeah, this idea that mixed race people are more beautiful, this idea that they're more attractive, this idea that they, you know, are going to develop some ability that, you know, people who are of one race, right, monoracial, as we call it, you have my, my quote fingers here, um, my sarcasm fingers, um, <laughs> like that, those little ideas have still stuck around. And so I think that that can, based on the what I've done talking to a number of like college age multiracials and like just other multiracial adults, people who kind of grew up with that narrative struggle with it quite a bit <laughs> and or, or are annoyed by it or frustrated by it. Um, but you also have people who buy into it and who genuinely believe, you know, that they, you know, are, inherently going to offer something. So it's, it's, you know, I definitely don't want to suggest that like everybody, you know, you know, kind of blanket hates these things, but there's a reason I think that researchers at least, and, and I think a lot of uh, multiracials who are academics or, you know, other kinds of activists, you know, kind of take issue. It's, 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 it's complicated. And I think kind of to go back to the earlier question you had about, you know, kind of how do you, you know, raise kids with all of this, mess. <laughs> um, I mean, I generally am a proponent of not pushing the, your, the, like, the, I, I think I struggle with the, you know, you're equally both. And if you don't recognize that you're both, then you're rejecting a parent. Like that's, I think that that's not fair. And I think, uh, particularly, I think white parents need to, I think, contend with if they have a child who it is not going to be assumed to be white in their interactions with others, that they cannot get in their feelings about how that child or, you know, when they become an adult, decides to identify and decides to move through the world. Uh, I mean, I, I, I fight with my mother a lot about the fact that I'm like, it's not that I don't tell people that my mother is white. I constantly tell people. My mother's white. I show pictures of her. I have pictures of everybody. Everybody knows my mom's white. If you know me, you know my mom is white. I'm like, I literally wrote a whole article that's called Your Mama is Vaglo White to talk about my white mama. So I'm like, nobody, like nobody can be under, you know, the 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 assumption that like I'm just like pretending I don't have a white mom. I'm like, but like for me, I move through the world as yes, a light-skinned, but black woman. Hey, y'all, in the interest of time, we had to cut this interview, but we're going to come back at you next week with part two, and you don't want to miss it. In the meantime, and in between time, you can follow her on Twitter at SGBugs. That's S-G-B-U-G-G-S. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on any podcast platform and make sure that you rate us. Also, we do have a YouTube channel if you prefer to watch our antics, and we also provide closed captioning. And if you want to know more about us, go check us out on our website at successinblackandwhite.com, or you can reach out to us directly on social media. My social media handle is I am Daryl Lovett on all platforms. And mine is April Dawn Lovett on all platforms.